Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. A reminder that we are now on Patreon. So for as low as a dollar a month, less than a coffee, you can support this show and help us to continue to create and promote premium content for, uh, for the world and for our community. So thank you for that. Today's guest is Ellis Ross. He is the MLA for the Skeena. He is a, a member of the Liberal Party and he's running for, uh, for the leader of the Liberal Party. He is, he is also uh, of the Hasla Nation, Hasla First Nations of Northern British Columbia. And he's here today to share with us his perspectives, his story, and his message of where we are moving forward in terms of the relationship between indigenous, the Indigenous community and the larger society. And it's a message that is, is profound and one that needs to be heard. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. All right, we have Ellis Ross with us, uh, MLA in the Skeena region of Northern British Columbia. Uh, thank you so much for being on with us today. Not a problem. Glad to be here. So you have, you've done a lot of work in your community in Northern British Columbia. And I was reading on a little bit about it. Do you mind sharing with us, uh, in your own words, some of the work that you've done? Oh, geez. Uh, where to start? Uh, I got elected to council in 2003 as a counselor. I spent eight years of that, uh, do, doing the, the base work of uh, being a full-time counselor, which meant uh, I picked up a lot of the files that uh, the council didn't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. And then in, uh, eight years later, I became chief counselor. And a couple of years after that, I, I, I was elected chief counselor by acclamation. But uh, as chief counselor, that, that's where I did the bulk of, of some of the things I was doing with my council, including uh, tearing apart our structure uh, our leadership structure, getting us away from the Indian Act, and focusing more on uh, economic development, specifically LNG. And what what I really want to do is do a number of things that my people have talked about for generations. You know, educate our young people, uh, build an elder center, uh, fund a language and culture center, build an apartment on reserve. You know, replace our dogs, and also, I took them into to uncharted waters. Like uh, we we acquired some of the most expensive property in uh, Kitimat, the, the town site, and we built a condominium, a twenty-one million dollar condominium that we leased out for ten years. We bought a marina that was next door to us, that I could never figure out how it left our hands in the first place. Uh, we acquired uh, a, a large chunk of crown land that neighbored our existing village. And we set it aside for future use for residential. Uh, across the channel, we, we acquired some of the most expensive waterfront property that we uh, earmarked for economic development. And we signed, uh, we signed IBAs with the uh, companies that want to do work here, like Chevron and LNG Canada and Rio Tinto Alcan and on and on and on. It was, uh, it was a great time. But it, that, that's, just, that's just a short list of some of the stuff that 
that, that me and my council did over the last uh, six years or so. So what? There's more, but it was all about independence and right, right, getting our people ahead. What what inspired you to to join council? <laughs> uh, there was no inspiration. Uh, mm. I, I was an angry young man, just like everybody else, mad at the government, mad at the white man, mad at my own council. But at the time when I got nominated, I was actually coaching a junior girls basketball team, uh, 17 and under girls. And I had, the, the program was gone for so long, I was trying to bring it back because I had two girls of my own. So when I, when I got nominated, I thought, well, maybe I can tap into council's vast resources and all the money that they have, and I can divert it to my basketball teams because there was no money around there. But when I got into council, it took me about a month to realize that my council was flat broke. They had no money. And in fact, they owed so much money, Canada was threatening to come in and shut down the council and pay the bills on our behalf. We, 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 were, a, we, were, we were a very poor band. And so, you know, what inspired me in the beginning was actually all smoke and mirrors. And then at, at that point, I decided I'd better be quiet and listen and learn and read and understand the true nature of what up we're up against here. Because up until then, I, I believed the narrative, right? You know, what we're going through is everybody else's fault. And, and you know, day by day, week by week, I found that that wasn't true. Can you tell me a little bit more about this narrative that you speak of? Which one? <laughs> you know, the, the angry young man narrative? Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's an unspoken kind of a history book where you learn just growing up about, you know, how to basically hate the government, hate the system, hate the white man. Mm. You know, every, everything's, you know, shaking your fist at somebody else. And it's, you know, I, I never lived by that really, but, uh, you know, I was just, out trying to make a living and you know but every once in a while you'd come across it and you know what I, I had this uh experience that, I, that probably a number of people have experienced over the years i'd go to a public meeting for example and i'd hear somebody get up in a, a public meeting and they, they'd speak brimstone and fire you know oh the government ah oh, white man took it ah oh. and it's high time that government listened to us and everybody would cheer and yell and scream and you know, hey, we're on our way. And then nothing would change for the next 10 years. And that's when I got into council, I realized I was part of that audience that was encouraging that. Instead of listening to the leader that was trying to say, look, why don't we do something here? Why don't we change our pathway? Why don't we uh, you know, get away from this complaining and yelling? And so I, be, I strive to be that leader that, that pushed for change instead of going along with the crowd and being angry all the time. It, it sounds like you were hoping to work with your goals in mind within the system. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, because I heard a, a number of public meetings that uh, I heard the words independence. Mm. I heard self-determination. I heard self-governance. And uh, the, the one that struck me the, the most was the ability to address our own issues on our own terms. 
And the one, the one, uh, the one topic I steered away from though was self-governance mm -hmm. because I didn't think that applied to independence. I didn't think that applied to, um, um, you know, success. I didn't think that was the, the, the magic formula, but it's, uh, and then and I blended it with uh, reading, reading up on the Indian Act and understanding the nature of the Indian Act, uh, understanding the nature of Aboriginal rights and title case law, understanding the, the true definition of governance. And so all I did was read, 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 read. And so by, by the time I became chief counselor, I had a, I had a solid plan in mind. Um, unfortunately, when I became chief counselor, my council actually didn't support my vision. And so it took me another two years for another council to come in and say, okay, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's, let's see what you're talking about. And that's well, when our band just basically took off and we haven't looked back since it was, it's an amazing journey. So this, this is back in 2003. Is that correct? 2003 when I became a counselor, but I became chief counselor when I was uh, 2011. So it sounds like in, in our society, we can be easily uh, enamored by popularist politicians people who are like these yes men and like yeah and and, and they, they they rile up the emotions but you didn't you didn't fall for that no and because you didn't fall for that people were like you know what's your stick right who is this guy but you were able to sort of think logically and how can i how can i help my community my band appropriately within you you kind of have to work within the system because the canadian government and first nations these things are now inseparable from my understanding they are but there's no we, we were on a good path in bc in terms of right. trying to resolve uh rights and title issues uh, that, that's all gone now it's it's changed in the last three years uh but in, in terms of following the system my point was there's a plan there someplace and we got to help develop that plan. We shouldn't just be going along with the flow and just doing as we're told. And, you know, a lot of this, like, for instance, uh, I used to say this a lot because I viewed my, my council administration as Indian Act council administration. And I used to say, I said, you know what? I don't care about the Indian Act. I don't care about the funding that comes with it. I don't care. That's not our future. So why don't we segregate that over there, leave that over there, and, and let's put a couple of councils in charge of it. And let's come over here and let's deal with everything outside the Indian Act because the Indian Act is so irrelevant. Right. I mean, it's so archaic. And it, I, I proved my point that a couple of times, once at a public meeting, you know, people were still complaining about uh, government, Canadian government and the Indian Act, we got to do this. And so I got up and I said, hey, guys, uh, everybody put up your hand. Who here has read the Indian Act? Hmm. And I put up my hand and nobody put up their hand. I said, so what are you guys fighting about? What are you complaining about when you haven't even read it, when you don't even understand the nature of it? I said, I'm not here to talk about the Indian Act. I could care less. Right. I said, if we, if we get away from this, if we get away from this kind of talk, I guarantee you the world will come to our doorstep. But you got to get away from this idea of, because every politician jumps on that, that, you know, we got to complain about the Indian Act, got to complain about the government. 
And that actually takes you away from, you know, any type of progressive plan that's actually just sitting there waiting for you. Because it, it, it's archaic is what you're saying. Oh, big time. I mean, yeah. the stuff that's in there doesn't even apply. And maybe if you did try to apply it, you know, there, there'd be a riot. I mean, it's, you- the internet breaks so many human rights issues and so many, I mean, it, it, right. it doesn't make any sense to me. So why bother with it? Well, I mean, even even the name suggests just how bygone it is. But it was still named that until like 1981 or something like that. Is that correct? Well, it's still there. And, you know, when, when I was watching this, as when I was a counselor still learning, uh, even natives don't want to change the Indian Act. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear all this talk about, let's abolish the Indian Act. Let's get rid of it. But, you know, when you start to change it, the first ones to actually fight the change are actually Aboriginals. And I've, and I've uh, related this as a, akin to being in a, in a really bad relationship. Mm. You know, you're being abused by your yeah. spouse. And somebody says, well, why don't you leave your spouse? And then you can't come to leave your spouse. And, and, so, and so instead of trying to change it and all that kind of stuff and trying to get away from it, I just said, guys, just ignore it. I mean, the only thing, the only thing that we're really reliant on in terms of the Indian Act is the money that comes to our band to provide programs for our people, which that in itself, I don't, I don't get either. I don't believe in that. And I think the structure that would be uh, better changed to suit, you know, how we're evolving as First Nations. But uh, if you come to our band, you know, we're, we made a, a lot of money on projects we made a lot of money on land acquisitions and now we're starting to build stuff we're starting to do build our own programs my band council last year just bought an apartment complex for 11 million dollars last year and they've they sectioned off a part of it for our own people for low income and they opened up the other section it was part of a a plan that i had a probably about four years ago to get away from the idea that we shouldn't buy our own land we shouldn't buy our infrastructure right Right. But it was my plan was turned down. And then last year, the council brought back that plan and bought a bought an apartment. And plus, we're building an apartment complex on reserve. And in today's day and age, you need money. Yes. You want to resolve some of these issues. And that's another problem is that. Where where is the money going and where is it? Is it centered? Right. I mean, we all pay taxes, but where does that money from taxes go? predominantly it goes to the in bc it goes to the lower mainland yeah that gets the most attention that gets the most press that makes the most quote-unquote money whereas the north is viewed as a a resource to be extracted from right yeah that's true and in fact it's uh kitimat we we could have been a huge generator of revenues for the province, but uh, the province actually cut a nice sweetheart deal for the LNG industry up here in Kitimat, but they're still providing a tremendous amount of revenue and opportunity up here in Kitimat. And just how do we capitalize on that? You know, if, mm-hmm. if I knew then what I know now, you know, I, I would have, I would have put more effort into making sure that the region itself, you know, could flourish and could actually build off this success that we're seeing. But I was chief counselor of a small little band. I wasn't actually representing a region. So I've, now that I look back on some of the stuff here, I'm um, looking back, I'll give you an example. Uh, 
rights and title is actually protected by the Constitution of Canada, Section 35. Okay. And that the, the flow down case law that actually gives uh, Aboriginals legal standing when it comes to these types of projects. So that's why we could negotiate revenues, jobs, training, contracts. Then I come out of it, and I'm now I'm in the MLA, and I see there's no legal authority to represent non-Aboriginal interests in a region. And so now I start to question. I say, okay, we got this major project, $40 billion. Who is responsible for making sure that non-Aboriginal interests are protected so that our communities can flourish? Local contractors, local uh, employees, local businesses, and there is no legal mechanism for it. And so it's, you know, it's, and what, what, I've, what I think is that as a politician, at the very least, I can highlight this and I can represent those non-Aboriginal interests because at the end of the day, you know, I got to live here. Right. I like the services here. I like the shopping here. I like the hospitals. So why wouldn't I advocate for better services in the region when it comes to major projects? So it, it's, it's something that I, that I noticed right away when I came to this position. It, it, it sounds like, uh, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it takes me a while to figure things out, uh, but you're, you're advocating for cooperation between all members of your community, of society, be it the settler population, right, and, and the Indigenous people that live there, rather than just forwarding the Indigenous community. Is that correct? Without a doubt, in fact, yeah, uh, you know, we, we put out a booklet um, probably about 10 years ago because I was watching everybody argue mm. over the, the, the definition of reconciliation. And where I first read that word reconciliation was reading Aboriginal rights title case law. And then I started to see everybody use their that word for their own purposes. If, you know, they're running for reconciliation. Uh, re-election. Oh, we need uh, reconciliation and using it as an excuse for everything under the sun. You know, oh, that's not reconciliation. And my, I try to kind of ground people and say, wait a minute. If you look at number one, the truest definition of reconciliation, that means to come back together. Right. 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 That means at one point we used to be together. Yeah. yeah. So, Recon so reconcile our differences, the yeah. expression. Right. But in case law, what it says is the judge said, you know, we'd better reconcile our differences because let's face it, uh, none of us are going anywhere. Hmm. And I, I thought about that. You know, when I was chief, when I was reading case law, geez, almost 15 years ago, I thought a lot about that. And I, I didn't quite understand it because I thought rights and title focused, you know, get what I want, you know, and finally turn the tables on government and turn the tables on corporations. But then as I, I started to move through my my, uh, my work here, I started to realize actually that judge was, was actually correct because a lot of Aboriginals use the services provided by the colonialists or the settlers, words I don't use. And uh, in turn, you know, the, 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 the non-Aboriginals, you know, the ones that are actually in charge anyway, are trying their best, but they don't understand, you know, the nature. And so I think... Instead of fighting all the time, why don't we try to bridge this gap that we have with understanding? And then we can solve some of the issues that we're actually talking about for the last 50 years. Yes. Right? 
Well, and, and that's such a, such a, a great point. I mean, again, it's, what am I doing on my side, you know, on, on, on the other side, the non first nations perspective, how can we build that bridge of, of trust because trust has been lost. There's no obvious, obviously it has. So how can we rebuild that trust between you and I? Yeah. I, th- I think it's understanding. Mm. I think it's uh, getting together because the, the fear that, that we have of each other is all based on misinformation and ignorance. Yes. That's all it is. Yes. So give, give you an example. When I was chief counselor, we, we had this ongoing battle uh, with uh, hydro, BC hydro. And it was connection with Rio Tinto Alcan's broken promises of 67 years ago in terms of electricity. But we always had this kind of love-hate relationship until uh, we had a, a blackout for like that lasted like over a week. Mm. And it was, we were snowed in, we couldn't get in, couldn't get out. And I had a hell of a time getting back from Vancouver. I, I took a plane that barely landed in Terrace. I took a rental car from Terrace because my truck was snowed in for the next couple of days. I took one that just came in, wasn't clean, jumped in it, came to get them at. And then I couldn't get to the village because my seven mile road was snowed in. And that was the last priority. So I jumped on a skidoo from a guy search and rescue. They took me halfway, couldn't go any further because of the trees down. And I said, I'm going to walk the rest of the way. But they, we chopped some trees and made it in. And when I got into the village, uh, yeah, it was, we, we weren't in emergency mode. Like it wasn't state emergency, but there, there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of. And so when we got through it, we, we started to talk with uh, BC Hydro in terms of how do we prepare for the next one? How do we make sure it doesn't happen again? And then when we're done, uh, you know what? I, some of the answers I got, I brought to the community. And I told the community, I said, you know what? BC Hydro is not that bad, actually. They're doing their best. So why don't we bring BC Hydro in? They explain their side. We explain our side. We share a meal. And let's, you know, let's start this new relationship. The community agreed. We sat down. We broke bread. And by the end of it, our people were saying, hey, Good on you, BC Hydro. We didn't know that part. So, you know, we, we gave them some gifts. And since then, we haven't had any real problems with BC Hydro. So there's ways to actually bridge this divide that we have. And it's, number one, you got to have an understanding. you got to cure the ignorance on both sides because it's on both sides. And, and relationship, right? We, we need to develop uh, a functional relationship that's built on respect like you say and understanding yes yeah understanding understanding the 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 issues that we're both facing i mean without without the understanding i mean there's no common ground right the the other piece and and this is a very sweeping narrative one that i'm not so aware of i'm not as well versed on as i should be but the reservation systems in canada I talk to people and, and they say things like, well, well, why do First Nations people live on reservations? And the, my, my understanding is that, well, traditionally speaking, First Nations people didn't live in reservations. That was a design by the government That's right. so that they could acquire land appropriately. Are you, are you able to share a little bit on, on the, the facts of that? 
Oh yeah. I mean, uh, it's our, our, you know, when I was hired and elected in 2003, uh, my council asked me to be the full-time counselor because, and I was the first one. Hmm. Because the chief first, counselor, first full-time. The first full-time counselor. They paid me uh, $45,000 a year. <laughs> so I quit my job. Yeah. Go work for the council. Yeah. And the council never really told me what to do. They just said, oh, just, you know, sit in the office and put out fires and we'll give you files from. So there, there was times where I just sat there. So I, I started going down to the archives and started reading everything. I could get my, every day I'd go down and read the archives. And, you know, there, there was a, a bit of a history that we had established in terms of how the reservations came to be in our territory. And for the most part, our people back then who didn't understand the legal system, didn't understand governments, didn't quite understand the language, they didn't know what happened. All they knew was the guy came in and said, hey, could you show us, you know, your, your hunting sites and your old village sites? And so, you know, our, us being trusting said, yeah, okay. So they took them down to our, through our territory and showed them, uh, you know, the different areas of where we hunted and fished. And then... So the, the government then took the 19 locations and they took little posted stamps of land, bang. They said, there, there's your land. You know, it's, it's yours forever under the Indian Act. And our people are going, what happened? Yeah. What, are you, what are you talking about? And so after that, when they try to figure out what happened, then they try to figure out, you know, how do we fight this? How do we reverse this? You know, how do we, how come, you know, before that big river system over there, I used to be able to go camp, fish, hunt, and now I'm regulated this little chunk of land. It's not even close to the river. And basically they lost that fight. And even at that, uh, the government, without our knowledge, leased out our lands to companies for pennies on a dollar that we didn't know about. And that the money actually flowed into our auto trust fund. And so a lot of this stuff happened with, you know, it was probably legal at the time under the government's laws, but our people had no clue, not a clue. Today, the reservation system actually means relatively nothing to us. Nothing. Uh, we, we've basically moved on and just said, you know, it is what it is, but you know what, we're not going to spend any more money fighting it. You know, let's, let's take on this new system. So the reserve system was, uh, you know, it was a mystery to our people, and it cost us a lot of money in trying to fight it. A lot of effort, and that. But you tell you what, the bands down south got huge tracts of land, huge. In 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 America or like no, southern? No, BC? southern BC. And whereas us, we got little chunks of land. I guess nineteen little reserves spotted all over our territory. Bands down lower BC got huge chunks of land next to nice lakes, and you know a lot of them took advantage of it in terms of the tourism industry. But for us, our land, like give you an example where I live in Kitimat Village, the Indian agent explained it because we got displaced from our village across the channel where uh, an aluminum smelter sits now. So they were trying to figure out where do we put these Indians. Mm. And this chunk of land we're on now was actually decided upon. And the Indian agent described it as, yeah, let them have it. It's not even good for agriculture. It's just good, it's just sand and rocks. So go ahead, let, let, let them live there. 
that's that's the attitude government had of us back then. Jeez. Well, and 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 then the other disturbing legacy, of course, is the residential schools and this idea that again it was maybe founded on on good, you know, good pretense, the quote unquote the white man's burden, right? That they would save the man, but kill the savage. That was the exact quote that they used only yeah. to destroy the man too, for, for the most part. Yeah, I think government jumped on this idea mm-hmm. uh, based on, you know, what, what leaders thought at the time was, was might've been a good thing. Uh, you know, when the church came to our band, uh, they opened up a school for girls, you know, teach them how to read and write. And when I was reading, you know, I was doing my reading in the archives, I came across a newsletter uh, called the Nanakwa. And it was, uh, they, they published this letter that this, uh, the, the administrator for the school wrote. And they, they talked about the complaints from parents in the village that said, it's not fair that just our girls get educated. So when we come in from our, our camps, you know, our boys, they don't get the, the education of math and reading and writing. They don't get that. It's not fair. We should be able to get our kids educated too. I think government jumped on that idea and they actually developed the residential schools you talk about. I mean, I think our people were understood that there was a world coming where reading and writing was going to be important. Right. Understanding money was going to be important. But I think government took that to the next level and, and for whatever reason, you know, created this residential school system without any firm rules behind it. And that's, that's what you saw coming out of those residential schools, all the abuses and all that. And I think the, the original intent, I think, had, had some good ideas behind it. But man, this is what I don't like about politics. You combine politics with government, mm. right? It's it's a bad mixture. I know it's a different day to day, but it's uh back then it you know we weren't even considered uh, um, people. Yeah, we were we, we were considered beasts. I mean, it, I'll give you this. There's one point on reading the archives. Uh, after a year or two of reading the archives, I realized what had happened to our people. And you know, I was sitting in the archives room, which is separate from our council office. But and I was sitting in the archives room, and I, I, it finally dawned on me what had happened to Aboriginal people, and specifically my people. Reading about residential schools, the churches, uh, reading about the Indian Act, and all that kind of stuff. And I sat there and I just cried. Hmm. And I hadn't cried since my girls were born. You know, I, I made a promise to myself when I was turned a young man, I was never going to cry again, because I cried so much as a young kid. But I cried that day, and then I got angry. Now, okay, payback, payback's a bitch. You know, I'm gonna come back, and I'm, yeah. I'm gonna find a way to, I'm gonna get them. Yeah. Then a couple of days later, when I settled down, I realized, you know what? If if I think about revenge, if I think about payback, I'm not doing anybody any any kind of good service, and it's not gonna help my people. Right. Get out of poverty, keep them out of prison, keep our kids out of uh, uh, government care. 
So I, I can't be angry. I got to think this out. How do I help my people? And so I got away from the, the ideas of revenge, but that anger was real. I was, I was seething. But uh, thankfully, I, I thought about it. And, uh, and that, that's what gave me a, a better perspective on the Indian Act and residential schools and acknowledge it. Yes. But fix today and fix tomorrow. But don't, don't dwell on that because it's just going to eat you and tear you apart. And I, I struggle with that myself is that you read these histories and you're just, it's, you're right. It's infuriating. Uh, and, and that's me saying it. And I'm not necessarily a person, you know, white privilege, right? I'm not a person who was directly affected by that. But when you start to see how this was designed, you know, you do want that kind of idea of revenge, but you get back in a different way, right? You do things positive for your community, for others. And, yeah. you know, you, you, you work to heal. I mean, that's part of the reason why I got into clinical counseling is I didn't want to further exacerbate the pain. I wanted to help heal people and ultimately help heal myself, which is what, what you've done. Oh yeah. yeah. And you know, the, the thing about it too, is that it's, it's an underlying message that I'm going to get revenge on the people that live today. Well, mm. the people that live today, they, they weren't there a hundred years ago. They have yeah. no idea what the history was or no idea what you're going through right now. So it's taking your anger out on somebody that's totally oblivious to what you're going through is, is, is not a good way. Even government leaders that, that, that don't understand, you know, there's no sense in taking your anger out on them. Yeah. The best you can do is basically chart a path for today and tomorrow. That's that's the best you can do. But, uh, that, that's why we wrote this booklet on reconciliation, on showing people what had happened in general right. to the Aboriginals. But you know what? Over the years, though, you know, ever since I started reading up on that uh, the, the atrocities that were applied to natives, you compare that to how other people have been treated around the world. And you'll know that this is part of human nature in terms of how people were treated. Yeah. The Irish, you know, the, 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 the black people, the Africans, you know, the Australians, the Jewish people. Yeah. I mean, th this is human nature. And so when I, when I was looking at all this stuff going on around the world, the, the one thing I looked at is, okay, if all those horrible things happened to those people, how did they survive and how did they learn to thrive in today's society? Because I, I didn't see my people thriving. I seen us surviving, but there had to be a way. If everybody else had been afflicted with these horrible actions, then, you know, we should take a lesson there. How do we come out of this? I mean, it's not unique what Aboriginals of Canada went through. It's not unique to, North, uh, to, the, to, to what's happening around the world. I mean, you look at the genocides, the real genocides that happened like over in Africa. Yeah. Uh, even the, the Bosnian-Serbian conflict was characterized as, you know, genocide. So it's, I, I, I took a bigger approach to it in saying, okay, as a society, how do we build ourselves up again? How do we make ourselves, you know, part of a larger society? Because <laughs> complaining is not helping. And how do we move from, like you say, yeah, surviving to thriving? Yes. And it sounds like your answer to that was to 
try to put policies in place that can benefit your community, but not just First Nations community, but your community overall. Yeah, the, all the, people. Oh, without a doubt. In fact, as as I, the thinking went along my head. You know, I I realized I said, you know what? There's got to be a way to succeed without disrupting the larger society. And there's got to be a way. There, there can't be winners and losers here. Mm. And when, when I thought about the larger society, uh, I thought also, you know, my community is actually part of the larger society as well. Because we have our own society here in our village, our culture, our language, that we're trying to save. But if I destroy the larger society, and, you know, I, I affect that negatively, my people go over there and they use the hospitals. Yeah. They love the shopping. They, they use social services. They use, so in a way, it's kind of two societies blended. So I don't want to do anything that will actually damage, you know, somebody else's society. There's, there's a human ecosystem in play here. Yes. Right? We're all working together. Yes. You know. And yet you can still branch off your own little... Yes. And that's important. Yeah. You need to... The, the thing that I've talked to people about is, yeah, larger society. And I, I like that term, larger society. What is its identity? I sometimes wonder, does it, does it even know? Well, you know, that, that's an interesting question because I, I read an article years ago that said uh, Canada had no culture. Hmm. And it was, it was an interesting concept because mainly we're, we're, we're a melting pot. We're a fusion. Yeah, everybody comes in with their own yeah. culture and you kind of share that little bits and pieces with each other. But uh, overall, did Canada have a culture? I don't know. I mean, we're, we're still a young country very young and we're still developing so it's a identity of canadian society i don't know in fact one of, one of my the latest thing i'm learning is that uh i had a i still have uh unbreakable loyalty and pride in my community my people but when i come out of this and i'm, I'm now the mla and i'm thinking more about the success of bc in canada I don't see that same pride coming from Canadians. Right. I don't see it. Right. Right. And that's why we're so easily picked off by, by different factions. Where did you go to America? Man, those guys. A little are, bit too much. Yeah. Patriotic, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can talk about the division of the United States, but, you know, when the chips are down. United mm -hmm. States are hugely patriotic. They love yeah. the flag. They love the constitution. They are American. They are American. Right. And they'll, they'll fight for it if they have to. Yeah. Canadians, I don't think are like that. I don't think we're that hundred percent patriotic unless you talk about say a hockey game. Right. And even then it's like, Oh, come on. That's what I'm known for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So wh why do you, why do you think that is that we just don't understand our own identity? This, this larger society? I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I, I try to write, read different articles on it, on what it means to be Canadian. And it's just, uh, I don't know. I, I just go back to the idea that, you know what? We're still young. We're still evolving. We haven't yes. really, you know, matured enough. You know, we haven't been through the battles like the United States or these other countries. Uh, you know, the things that Canadians did 
seem to have been lost on Canadians. I mean, Canadians are well known for their, their contributions to World War II. Right. Right, as a country. But in terms of development and identity, I don't think it's, it's there. And I don't see the, you know, the, the one thing that keeps us together, Canadians. I don't, I mean, I've tried to say, you know what, to build a strong country, you need a strong economy, mm. you know, and that mm-hmm. certainly helps build strong societies. But I don't see Canadians actually thinking that way. I, I have never been able to figure out what makes Canadians proud to be Canadian. Whereas I know for, without a doubt, I know what it means to me as a Heisler person, right. as a that person, I know without a doubt. But Canadians in general, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint. And it's, it's just this weird conglomerate, right? I mean, what, 90% of our population lives within 50 kilometers of the U.S. border, some crazy number like that. Yeah. So much of the media that we consume is American. To really understand yourself, because as I said, I am part of this larger society. I best understood myself when I am a minority in different countries. For example, I've been to a friend, I've been to Barbados and a friend of mine, he is Bajan. So I wasn't just living the tourist life. You know, I was very much in the world of Barbados. I've been to Haida Gwaii, where again, I was a minority. And it's there that you kind of start to understand a little bit of who you are. But again, it's still quite a vague sense. But it really does come back to this idea of, I think we are just a fusion or we're becoming a fusion of so many things that brought us here. Because if you really break it down, my family is Scottish and English, but I don't really know what that means. You got an inner turmoil Scottish versus English. Oh, oh, there's inner turmoil there. Trust me. Right. We only, we, we need only watch Braveheart to understand that. Right. (laughs) But you know, there's, it's just, it kind of comes down to who are we? And then, being careful when you say that, right? Because again, you're part of that larger society. You're the, the quote unquote people in power. So to not know who you are, right? Kind of a strange statement. You ought to know who you are, shouldn't you? So. And you only got to look at social media feeds in terms mm. of what you think about. We're consumed by Donald Trump and American news. Yes. Right? Yeah. We run an election here in BC. Nobody really. Nobody watched it. Right? It wasn't dramatic enough. Yeah, but we watch every day when Trump gets up to tweet something. Or yeah, that, that consumes us. That's our, that's our lives. Whereas this is what I don't understand about Canadians. Yeah. You get your own elections in BC, municipalities, your country, but you are more interested in Trump and the American politics than anything. And I, I don't get that. I don't understand that. You know, it's, it's, here's, here's what I think and, and please correct me, but cause I'm, I'm 31. What, what do I know yet? Not much. Let me tell you, Young but guy. it's almost like it's not exciting. And when things aren't exciting, when there's no drama, you can get away with things because let's be honest, what's going on in Northern BC in terms of the resources and the water, uh, the boil advisory, that should be pressing news, but it, nope. Donald Trump and his raid on the Congress or whatever, that takes up so much more bandwidth. Why? 
because I think it's more exciting or so we think. Entertainment, I guess, right? Yeah. I mean, what, what did the Romans love? Bread and circuses. Meanwhile, the Roman Empire was crumbling. Yeah. Right? But they all went to the Colosseum to see some guy beat the hell out of some other guy. <laughs> Distraction, right? Yeah. And that's what I'm afraid is happening. It could be. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, but, I, but I think really, truly, that's why there should be a, a, a line between governments and politics. Yes, I agree. Politics is more entertainment, show, but uh, governance is actually the basis of, you know, how our society should be formed and maintained. Think about it this way. There, there was a separation during the Enlightenment between church and state. That's when they're like, hold on, maybe the church shouldn't run the country. People are like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. To your point, maybe these politicians that are getting you know paid off like there's there's some extreme lobbyism that's going on that is inauthentic to what democracy is right democracy isn't brought to us by fedex you know what i mean by our sponsors it's brought to us by our people that's what democracy is yeah yeah you know the thing about i didn't know much about legislature or bc politics before Mm -hmm. i became an mla uh, but I did lobby government, BC government, and to a certain extent, uh, the Canadian government when I was chief councillor. Only because, I mean, there, there were some things that I wanted to see happen in terms of LNG happening in BC. We we lobbied heavily. But now that I'm in MLA, uh, you want to reach out to me? Reach out to me. Right. You want to come visit me in the legislature? You're not elitist. Yeah. Come yeah. visit me. But you don't, you don't need, and I don't care what your political stripe is. You don't need to pay somebody to get into my office. You don't mm. need to like email me. Like some of the stuff that you're, you probably need to talk, contact me about is probably not my area. It's not my expertise, but you know, I'm, I'm just a regular guy. I'm doing, trying to do a job on behalf of BC, but there's ways to contact me. Right. And it's not, I'm not off limits, whether I'm in Terrace, Kitimat, or if I'm in Detroit, I'm not off limits. There's ways to contact me. Well, I mean, clearly, right? Oh yeah. Without you know, that. you've you've made yourself available, and and people need to see leaders that are of the people. My granddaughter. We share this space. She goes to school here once in a while. Yeah. And I, I get I get booted from <laughs> musical but, chairs. The Zoom yeah. musical chairs. So I got re- I resort now to the basement. Right? <laughs> you now, got you got demoted. Yeah, and so <laughs> I set myself up in a little place here. Now, yeah. Now the other people in my house want to use this space as well. So I just keep getting pushed to different parts of the house. It's I I know the feeling. My daughter, she's seventeen months old. I have to I have to do this out of uh, a separate house because she'll just open the door. Ah! It's like oh, I guess the meeting's over. But. <laughs> You had mentioned the importance of an economy for a strong country. And, and that represents this, the, the, the way the world is. Like that's just what we need is this, uh, this kind of capitalist system. I, I, I avoid using that word, but also education. And that's the empowerment of the self. And we do need more of that these days. Like you said, the work that you're doing, you're not an elitist, you're an approachable person. 
and you listen. And that's what democracy is. And it's, it's you know, I, I do link the economy to a strong country, but I also, this is what I learned as a chief counselor, reading rights and title case law and knowing our history. Uh, you do need a strong economy for a strong society. Right. Because I've seen the reverse. Right. On reserves all across Canada, there's no economy. And you have high levels of unemployment, crime, imprisonment, kids in care. So if Canadians, if you don't understand the true value of a strong economy, talk to any First Nations leader who's trying to build an economy. And I've seen both now. My village doesn't have an economy still, but we participate in the economy around us. And now my band actually uses the proceeds of engagement. And we actually make sure that all our band members on the band list, no matter where they live, they get help. So if they're in right. Alberta, whereas a typical Indian Act band only gets enough funding to deal with their members on reserve, which is 50% of their band list. Right. But because we got our own revenues now, and this is, and in turn, when we help that person in Vancouver, that person is actually making their society stronger in, yeah. in their own little clique. So this, this is all about strong society and the, the bonds that tie us and actually the, the obstacles that keep us apart. Right. So that, that's why I think about the economy and links with a strong society. And I think that that's the way the world is going is we need to understand that there is an ecosystem beyond our understanding that we are all interconnected, right? Hugely. And it's getting, you know, the world's getting, this social media stuff is yeah. crazy. I, I never thought that the age of information that was first talked about in the 80s, yeah. you know, would get to this point. Yeah. This is, a, this is incredible. I was talking to a guy from Nigeria about uh, like a so, like a grassroots uprising against the government. Like, isn't that, isn't that mind blowing? When would that ever get the time of day before? Like I would just be watching, uh, you know, the Simpsons or whatever. And like, loot, do, 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 humming away. Now I'm having these meaningful conversations that are opening my eyes. Right. And I can share it with others. Well, you know, it, it's touching every part of our lives now. Yes. We don't know. You know, a couple of years ago, my son-in-law, you know, I, I went to visit uh, my daughter and we were sitting there talking. What well, I thought we were talking. He was playing a video game and, <laughs> and I'd, I'd say something back and then I realized, who are you talking to? Right. He said, oh, I'm playing this, you know, I'm talking to some guy in Germany. They're playing a video game. Yeah. And it, Germany. Oh, yeah. My, my other teammate is from Australia and we're all talking to each other. And it's just, I don't think we understand how the internet and the age of information is actually affecting every part of our lives. It's a new age. And the interesting thing is that those are real connections with, yeah. with Germany yeah. and Australia. It's not about like, oh, yeah. hey, the oil crisis over there. Like, how are you doing? It's like, let's play this game, this shared, you know, distraction, be it Fortnite, be it whatever. And let's have a good time. And it's through that that you start to see that people are people. Yeah, exactly. Right? No matter what your walk of life is, at the end of the day, we all want to be able to, you know, live with ourselves and enjoy life and do this stuff. I mean, it's, it's, this is what drives me nuts is that politicians look for ways to divide us so mm. they can get elected. 
Yeah, so they can reap what they sow. Yeah, because right? that's their harvest. And and it's all about oh that that person over there is bad or that party over there is bad. Yeah. And what I'm, I'm trying to come from is no 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 we're all the same. We all want to put food on the table and clothes on our kids' back, and we want to. There's stuff we want to do in today's life. It's just let's stop dividing people. I man, you you got my vote. Let me tell you, you have my <laughs> vote. Wow. So kind of my last question because I am looking at time and and I don't want to I don't want to take up more time than than you've given me. Thank you. Is I've read a lot as a, as a clinical counselor about trauma. And I do believe that there's historical trauma, such a thing as historical trauma. We talked about residential schools. We've talked about the reservation systems, borders in the world. How do we break the cycle? We, we see problems with addiction. We see problems all, all around the world, right? These mental calamities. How do we break the cycle and empower people? So I'm an alcoholic, 20 years. Uh, I dabbled in drugs as uh, a young man. And all those ads on TV and everything else didn't break my, my love of drugs. Uh, I think this is going to be, in terms of trauma, it's going to be person by person. And you need a trigger to actually break that trauma. And for me, you know, it was an idea that, look, this was passed on to me. Mm. it was learned behavior and so what am i going to do to break that cycle i'm going to have to make some sacrifices i'm going to have to be disciplined to, to kind of say that i don't want my kids and my grandkids to grow up the way i did and it does in the beginning it's hard because i love to drink and when i drank i loved to fight i loved to argue and do all the freaking crazy stuff but in, in terms of sacrificing that, if you can call it sacrificing, what I call fun. Right. It was, and now looking back and it wasn't fun. It was a horrible way to live. Horrible. And for me, it was like, okay, I've got to show my kids. I've already showed them the dark side of what it means to be an Aboriginal growing up, I guess. But how do I show them a different side of me? The, 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 the kind of person that I really want to be. I want to be a father. I want to be uh, somebody you can depend on. I want to create a really safe home life. And I don't want to bring any of those outside influences that can actually expose my girls to yeah. rape. Yeah. These are really tough questions. I mean, the, the trauma is, I, I think you got to face it face on and you, person by person, you got to look in the mirror. What am I doing to actually break that cycle? And this is what I did. It was painful. But uh, 20, 20 years later, I'm glad I made that decision. You know, one morning I just said, I'm not going to drink. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to be part of this, this idea of prolonging the trauma or the effects of trauma. Uh, my girls now, you know, they, they have no issue with substance abuse. They have no issue with fighting. And who knows, my grandkids are, are probably could care less about rights and title, could care less about, you know, about the Indian Act and, you know, and they're not going to know what it means to, to be a substance abuser. So I think it's going to be painstakingly one person at a time. You need a trigger. And as an individual, what are you going to do to break that cycle? Because that's how, that's how we do it. We're not going to be able to do it en masse right. as a society. Wow. 
Alice Ross, thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you very much and stay warm. Uh, yeah, minus seven here to us. We're dying of uh, uh, frostbite. Uh, <laughs> what uh, is it up there? Uh, minus 15? It was minus 20 there yesterday, but I think it got down to minus 10 today. There you go. Do you guys have a hot tub? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Hey, thank you so much. Take care. Good talking to you. Once again, that was Ellis Ross, uh, an incredible privilege and an honor to have him on the show and to share his perspectives. I absolutely love what he's, I, I feel refreshed by what he had to share in terms of, yes, there's a history here. Uh, relationships have been tested, have been damaged, but we need to move forward. We need to develop an understanding between our two communities of the indigenous nations and of the larger society and we have to work together because where we are is we cannot separate we have to work together to create the best future possible for our families and for the generations ahead of ourselves thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed the show once again we are on patreon the proceeds help in putting together a show uh and, and supporting the people that make this is possible. Have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.